Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 1. We've been looking for the last number of weeks uh, on some things that the Bible says about angels, and we want to continue to do that. We've used, um, are using, as a text scripture, a beginning point, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, that says, uh, Are they not all, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. We've made the point before, but I think it bears repetition. Notice it does not say minister to them. It says minister for them. In other words, they are our servants. As heirs of salvation, they're our servants. Now, we've looked at some different things, different uh, aspects and characteristics, if you will, of uh, what the Bible tells us about angels and how they operate. We've seen that, uh, that, agent, that uh, angels are agents of protection. We've seen that they are agents of deliverance. We've seen that they're agents of healing. God uses them in healing works very often. We've also seen that they are uh, agents of guidance, that uh, sometimes the Holy Ghost speaks, but then other times the the angels are dispatched from heaven to give uh, direction, to give uh, revelation, to bring revelation. Tonight I want to talk to you about a little different uh, aspect of the angels. And uh, I'll remind you of Psalm 103 and verse 20. If you want to turn there, you can. It's a verse that we've looked at a couple of different times. It says, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength. The margin of my Bible says mighty in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Hearkening, that's a a strange phrase, hearkening unto the voice of his word. We could say they hearken unto his word, and and we would understand that. But it goes further than that. It says that that they hearken or are, uh, we might even say it this way, they listen to or are commissioned or dispatched by the voice of His Word. Now, where is the voice of God's Word coming through you and me? In other words, it's us speaking the Word of God that dispatches the angels. But notice, uh, that's an interesting thing. We can talk about that, and we will talk about that more as, uh, as we conclude the series in a week or two. But, uh, but one thing I want you to notice is, uh, notice the first part of the verse. It says, bless ye the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, are mighty in strength. I want to talk to you tonight about the strength of angels. Specifically, that they are strengthening agents. Now, I'm going to refer to some things, and, and I may turn to some scriptures. Feel free to turn with me if you want to. If you, if you don't, uh, we're, we're really not going to take a lot of time to read some of these things. But we find out from the Bible that, uh, that angels are used in a variety of ways. In Genesis chapter 19, it tells us that they were instrumental, instrumental in the destruction of Sodom. It says that, uh, uh, that Jesus and angels appeared unto Abraham. He sat down with them. He fed them. And then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? They were on the way to see if the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, or if the cry of Sodom, the city of Sodom, was as great and as, uh, the sin was as grievous as, uh, as had reached the ears of the Lord. And, uh, and so the Lord showed Abraham, Okay, here's what's going to happen. And you remember that's when Abraham petitioned for the city. Lord, are you going to destroy the city if there's 50 righteous people? And he said no. And finally, Abraham whittled him down to 10. Uh, that's probably a bad way to say that because it sounds like Abraham wanted something that God didn't want, and that wasn't the case. Instead, it shows us a picture of our ability to reason with the Lord, to carry out God's will here on the earth, and to stand in the gap for the unsaved. So anyway, it says that after they agreed on ten, if we find ten righteous people, we want to destroy the city. It tells us in chapter 19 about how that the angels went into the city. And it says some very interesting things. It talks about how the angels, after they were um, uh, taken into Lot's house, uh, the, um, the men of the city started pounding on the doors, saying, send these men out that we may know them, literally have homosexual sex with them. And, uh, and the, the Lot was um, uh, outside the door, and, and apparently his life was in danger because the angels pulled him back inside the door. And then it said that they uh, smote the people with blindness. Now, that can't be sickness and disease. If you uh, saw the Bible series that, that showed that, it showed everybody's eyes bleeding and stuff like that. God doesn't have sickness and disease to give anybody. So it, we would have to assume that it would be blinded with the light, blinded with the glory of God, much as Saul was blinded by the glory of God on the road to Damascus. Otherwise, we would have no um, scriptural means of uh, assuming uh, otherwise, because, as I said, God doesn't deal with sickness and disease. If God made people sick, where is he going to get the sickness from? The devil's the author of sickness. 
So is God subcontracting sickness from the devil? That doesn't make sense. God never works with the devil in anything. But anyway, at any rate, it says that he spoke to people with blindness. And then he started, the angel started talking to, uh, to Lot about leaving the city. And um, uh, let's see. Where do we, uh, where do I want to, I do want to read a couple of scriptures in this because it, uh, it mentions something. Uh, where is it? Where is it? The angel starts talking to him about leaving the city and getting his uh, sons-in-law and they didn't listen and his daughters and, um, um, oh, where's the verse I'm looking for? Oh, here it is. Verse 12, it says, And the men said, talking about the angels, the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whosoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place? For notice this, verse 13, For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And then he goes further, and it says that Lot, the son-in-laws wouldn't listen. And so he's trying to, the angels are trying to hurry Lot and his family, his wife and his daughters out of the city. And it says, uh, verse 21, Lot's concerned about where he's going to go. And so he says, can I go into that little city over on the, the hillside over there? And he said, the angel said unto him, verse 21, see, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also that I will not overthrow this city for which thou hast spoken. In other words, the little city that Lot wanted to go to. Apparently it was in close enough proximity to where it would have been destroyed as well. And it says in verse 22, haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Now, the Bible tells us that when Lot and his wife and his daughters got outside the city, it said that the Lord rained fire and brimstone down upon the city. And we know that it was fire and brimstone that came upon the city, but we just read that it says that the Lord sent the angels to do that. So I think there's a lot of times where we see uh, stories in the Bible where it talks about uh, natural things occurring, where we might be able to, to identify the work of angels. Certainly that was the case in, in this, this situation. If we weren't talking about angels, we probably wouldn't even make mention of the fact that the angels were the ones that were the destroying agents, destroying sin, or destroying the cities because of sin. Why? Because it's fire and brimstone. We wouldn't associate that with the angels. Yet, that's what the Bible says. So that raises a couple of questions in my mind. For example, we know that Joshua, in um, chapter 5, before he goes, to, to, um, take the, uh, goes out against the city of Jericho, we see that there was an angel that appeared. And when he sees the angel, he asks the angel, Are you for us or against us? And the angel identifies himself as the captain of the Lord of hosts. In other words, I'm the captain of the Lord's army. Now, you can make an argument that this is Jesus in a, in a pre-incarnate appearance, and, and I couldn't argue with that. That's certainly possible. But it's also just as possible that this was an angel that is identifying to Joshua, this is how God is on your side. You have heavenly agents, heavenly warriors, to help defeat the promised land, to conquer the promised land that God has promised you. If that's the case, it's possible that angels were behind the walls of the city of Jericho falling. Now, I don't know what they did, but it's possible that they were involved in that. But see, we, at least I, I'll talk for, my, talk for myself in this situation. I see the things that the Bible says, the Lord did this, and I just think that was God in heaven that did it. But how does God do stuff? Did God come down and shake the walls? How does God do stuff? Isn't that what the angels are for? Don't they carry out his will and his plan and his purpose? I mean, the CEO of a company doesn't come down and sweep the floor, does he? No, he hires people for that. He's got people that work for him and work on his behalf to take care of the, the day-to-day operations. I wonder if that's the way it works in heaven. It would make sense that it would. It's certainly a possibility, isn't it? So then that brings to my mind when Joshua commanded the sun and the moon to stand still. The angels have anything to do with that? We certainly see in Genesis 19, if it's a pattern, if it's a principle for us to accept, and, and if it's not, why is it there? We certainly see a possibility of a principle that some of the things that we consider natural or supernatural occurrences in nature, the angels are involved in. 
Well, if angels are bringing fire and brimstone down on a city to destroy the city, we don't know how big the city was, but it was a lot of people. There had to be a lot of people. That's why Lot wanted to go there to begin with. When he left Abraham, he said, well, let me take the city. The city's a great place to raise your kids, you know. So that's where he went. So it had to be a good number of people there. And the angels destroyed that without any trouble at all. Their biggest problem was getting Lot and his family out. Their problem was not the fire and brimstone. Their problem was not bringing destruction on the city. They were well able. They were plenty strong enough to handle that. Their biggest thing was, will you guys hurry up so that we can carry out what God sent us here to do? Same thing in, uh, in Hezekiah's day. You remember Hezekiah asked for a sign from the Lord. And Isaiah said, well, what do you want? Do you want the sun dial, the, the shadow of the sun to move forward 10 degrees or back 10 degrees? And he said, well, it's nothing to move, the forward, move it forward 10 degrees. Let's turn it back. And the Bible says that it turned back 10 degrees. Well, how'd that happen? Were the angels involved in that? It's possible. See, there's a lot of things about the angels and the work of angels that we are left to, to wonder about. And I think there's only one explanation for that. At least there's only one that satisfies me. And that is, we're not supposed to worship the angels. And some people, bless their heart, if they saw angels in everything, and some people do. Some people see angels behind every rock and every tree and, you know, everything's the angels. Then you get to looking at the angels more than you look at the Lord. And that's not God's intent. That's certainly not his plan. But we do have enough information to see that the angels are well capable to handle things that we consider to be superhuman. In uh, Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, it tells us about Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria. And he began to attack the cities of Judah. And he took, he overtook and overthrew several of the cities. And now finally he's got, uh, he's got um, Hezekiah bottled up in the city. And he sends word to them. He doesn't even want to fight against them. He sends word to them and he says, now what are you folks going to trust in? If you say you're going to trust in Egypt, you know the Pharaoh, he deceives everybody. He's not worthy of your trust. He'll betray you. But if you say you're going to trust in the Lord, you're going to trust in the arm of the Lord. Well, is that the same Lord that Hezekiah took down the altars? And he said, and then, he, then he started lying about it. He said, don't think the Lord is on your side and will deliver you out of this. In fact, the Lord told me to come destroy your cities. And so he makes all these threats, make a deal with me and, and I'll be good to you and all this kind of stuff. And finally, Hezekiah, who has messed up in some big, big ways, turns his face to the Lord and cries out to the Lord. And Isaiah speaks up with the Lord's answer. And he says this. He said, don't worry about Sennacherib. Don't worry about Assyria because his threats will come to nothing. He's fighting against me, and I will make sure that he doesn't take the city. Then it says, this is Isaiah 37, verse 36, I think it is. This says, then the angel of the Lord went into the camp of the Assyrians and slew 185,000 before daybreak. Now think about that number. 185,000 before morning. Folks, the Bible doesn't say so, but I'd be willing to bet they didn't even work up a sweat. See, where the Bible says, bless ye the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, we think, yeah, they're strong. No, they're strong. They are agents of strength. Now, there's another characteristic about that, too. In uh, Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon, it was an angel that brought Gideon out of his fear, his hiding because of the Philistines. When the Lord says, the angel of the Lord came, and again, we could argue that this was Jesus himself. That's okay. But it seems to indicate that there's two people, two supernatural beings at work. One, an angel, and the other is the Lord. One, it talks about the Lord said, and the other talks about the angel did a certain, did certain things, did certain works. So it says that the angel starts speaking to Gideon and says, oh, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And he starts complaining. He says, oh, wait a minute. He says, Gideon, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And he says, wait a minute, that can't be right. If the Lord is with us, why are all these problems occurring? Why are we oppressed? Why are we threatened by the enemy? Folks, people haven't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. See, when the Bible says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, when God tells us he'll never leave you or forsake you, a lot of people say, well, that can't be right because look at my life. 
Well, the problem wasn't that God wasn't with Gideon. The problem was that Gideon wouldn't do what God told him to do. The problem wasn't on God's end. It was on Gideon's end. And that's what God's trying to get him to do. Now, after he speaks to him and says, go in this, your strength, and different things like that, which indicates that was the Lord speaking to him, then he says, wait a minute, don't go. Let me fix you something. Let me be hospitable. Let me do what I'm supposed to do as far as treating you right. So it says that Gideon made a cake and brought out some food and drink and that kind of stuff. And it says that the angel touched it with something, and then it flared up. It was consumed in a fire, and then he disappeared. Then the Lord's still there for for Gideon to talk to. So it indicates that there's two personalities involved there in in Judges chapter 6. And when he sees that the angel did that, he starts uh, speaking out to the Lord and saying, Oh, no, I've seen the face of an angel. Now I've got to die. And the Lord says, You're not going to die. That's not how it works. And so then he starts going off and doing things. My point is very simply this. The presence of an angel strengthened Gideon to step into some things that God had for him to do. Now, this one I do want you to look at. I want you to look with me over to 1 Kings chapter 19. So we want to see, I want you to understand that the Bible talks about the the angels as being mighty in strength or excelling in strength. And we understand that that means superhuman strength, but on the same, right on the same token or by the same token, it speaks of strengthening the individuals to whom they appear. So there's strength on two different fronts here. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, it tells us uh, prior to this, this is after uh, Elijah's, uh, toward the end of Elijah's reign as a prophet or operating in the office of a prophet. Um, he had a three-year run that was unlike anything that, that we see in the Old Testament in history. Because in those three years or three and a half years, he commanded that it wouldn't rain and it didn't for three and a half years. Then he has the test on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. He winds up calling fire down from heaven. I don't know if the angels had anything to do with that or not. Possible. We don't know. But he calls fire down from heaven. And as a result, the people recognize that God is the true God. And then Elijah kills with the sword 450 of those prophets. All the prophets of Baal. Personally kills them. He doesn't command them to be killed. He says, bring them down into the valley. And then he personally took the sword and killed 450 prophets of Baal. Yeah, those faith preachers, you never know what they're going to do. Then he speaks the rain in. He goes up into the mountain. He sees a little cloud like the size of a man's hand and sends words saying, get ready for a rain, and it rains. Man, it rains. It pours for days and days and days and days. All this happened in the space of about three and a half years. But then Jezebel, the king's wife, the queen, hears that uh, Elijah has killed her prophets. Now, she used these prophets to try to control the people. And when she hears that Elijah has killed all these prophets, she makes a threat. She says, so shall it be unto Elijah this time tomorrow. Now, if you've got the strength or the power, to, and, and not only that, but Elijah did some other things just prior to that. It talks about how the captain of the host of uh, or the, the Syrian king sent uh, units of 50 soldiers to capture him. And every time, at least the first two times, it happened three times. The first two times, he calls fire down out of heaven. He he says, oh, man of God, the king of Syria calls you. And he says, well, if I am a man of God, then let fire consume you and your 50. Second guy comes up, same thing. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. The third guy comes out and falls on his face and says, oh, please, I'm just the messenger. The king really would like to see you and (laughs) please help me out here. I know you're the man of God. You are the man. And so Elijah goes with him. Well, I don't know if the angels had anything to do with that or not. Could be. Maybe not. I don't know. But it was certainly a supernatural occurrence. Now, if you've got that kind of power, what are you running because Jezebel says she's going to kill you for? It's interesting because Elijah is the one that's used as a type of a righteous man. In in James chapter 5, verse uh, 15, it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Then it says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions, human emotions, just like we are. And he prayed and it didn't rain for three years. In other words, it talks about Elijah, who's up and down, in and out, subject to change, just like we are, subject to emotions, just like we are. He runs because he's afraid. He does mighty works for God and then runs because he's afraid. 
I mean, this guy seems as consistent as, as a lot of Christians I know. Sometimes they're strong, other times not so much. And he's the one that's used as an example of a righteous man who gets prayers answered, who does mighty exploits by the hand of God. So he's had a, he's had a tremendous run. I mean, these, these last three and a half years or so, they have been phenomenal. He did all of his works that we have records of. He did all of those works in a three to three and a half year period. But now he's running. He runs up into the mountain. He's discouraged. He says, oh, God, there's nobody left but me. Well, that wasn't true. The Lord reveals to him. He said, I've got 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Not only that, but he's just destroyed all the prophets of Baal. How big a draw is Baal going to be from this point forward? Yet he's complaining that he's the only one. He ought to be just rejoicing and saying, finally, we got that Baal thing out of the way. Now we can convince people that God really is God. He's got the best opportunity for revival that he's ever had. But he's discouraged. Now notice what happens. First Kings chapter 19. Uh, we'll start in verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. Now, folks, when Elijah said, Lord, let me die, he didn't mean that any more than you say, Lord, let, than you mean it when you say, Lord, let me die. If he wanted to die, all he had to do is stay where Jezebel was. She would have taken care of that by morning. He's running because he doesn't want to die. But yet he says, oh, Lord, let me die. And he requested it for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, to take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. This guy's having a major pity party. He's just had one of the greatest victories in the history of Israel, and now he's having a pity party. Now, I don't know about you, but this guy gives me hope. I've had a few of those myself. I know you haven't, but some of us aren't as strong as you. And as he lay, verse 5, and as he lay and slept up under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water by his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mountain of God. You know what you need when you're discouraged? A good night's sleep and something good to eat. That's God's principle here. Now, the angel made him something, and, the, and, and obviously this was supernatural because it, it sustained him for 40 days. Now, I don't know how big Elijah was. I don't know what the deal was. But you've got to imagine that a guy living out like that is, needs somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 calories a day if he's a normal-sized guy. For 40 days... 2,000 calories a day, that's 80,000 calories. That means each of these meals is 40,000 calories apiece, or the strength, the equivalent strength thereof. Now, folks, you can go to the restaurant and find meals where you, that, that are 1,000 calories, but can you eat 40 of them and then come back later that night and eat 40 more? Folks, there's a supernatural aspect to the things God does. I mean, if this guy, if this is literally 40,000 calories or 80,000 calories, 40,000 per meal, if this is literally 80,000 calories, there's no way it's going to last him for 40 days. He's going to be waddling. This guy's all of a sudden become a whale. But notice the supernatural aspect. When God does something, it carries supernatural results. And how did that happen? Because the angel gave it to him. What did the angel do? The angel strengthened him. He strengthened him with the food that he gave him. Now, was it natural food? Was it normal food? I have no idea. I know it had a supernatural effect on him. It gave him strength for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't have any idea what it was. The Bible calls it a cake. Okay. It's a cake. And a cruise of water. There wouldn't seem to be anything supernatural about that. Certainly it's supernatural that they're there because an angel brought them. But beyond that, what do we know? Now, there's something else about the strengthening aspect where angels are concerned. And I'll remind you, look with me over to John chapter 1. I'll remind you of something that we saw a week or so ago. I'm not sure exactly when it was. 
But in John chapter 1, it tells us about uh, Jesus calling his disciples. We want to read the, uh, I want to get the context of this. So let's back up into about verse uh, 43. It says, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and found Philip and said unto him, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto them, unto him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Now, the way that this is spoken, Jesus is either talking about himself or he's talking about Nathanael, or maybe he, in a, it, the way that it's said, he could be talking about both of them. He's answering Nathanael's question. He's saying, Look at me. There's nothing phony about me. But he could be saying the same thing about both of them. He may be saying, I like your forthrightness, Nathanael. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. In other words, what he said showed Nathanael that he knew supernaturally by revelation, he knew of the things that had happened that that, uh, that Nathanael said to Philip. And there's no other way. He's been with Philip the whole time. There's no way that he could have known that. So he recognizes that as a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus answered and said unto him, verse 50, Because I said unto thee, I saw saw thee under the fig tree, you believe? You shall see greater things than these. Well, what things, Jesus? And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven opening, heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, tell me, how did he mean that? Did he mean that literally, that Philip was going to see angels going up and down, going from Jesus back to heaven and coming down from heaven upon Jesus? If so, we don't have any any scriptural reference that that happened. It's possible. It's possible that the disciples witnessed things like that, and it just, the Bible doesn't tell us. But boy, that would have been a cool thing for the Holy Ghost to leave out. Or did he mean that figuratively, talking about supernatural works? Well, since we don't have any scriptural evidence that they literally saw that, I have to assume that he meant figuratively, you'll see heaven coming down upon me. You'll see signs and wonders and miracles. You'll see healings. You'll see me walk on the water. You'll see me turn water into wine. You'll see me heal the sick. You'll see all kinds of different things. You'll see the lame walk, the blind see. You'll see all kinds of things like that. But nowhere does the Bible tell us that angels were at work in those things. So what does that mean? Does that mean the the angels were used in some of those supernatural and miraculous things that the Bible just doesn't tell us that the angels did that? Is Jesus telling us ahead of time that these works will be taken care of and provided by the angels carrying out the plan of God? And we just don't have record of it. We just don't know. And so we have to assume that many, if not all of the things that Jesus did, were facilitated by angels at Jesus carrying out of God's word. Several things to consider. I'm not sure. I don't know which one's right. I'm not sure which one's to go for. So I'm going to have to leave it out there for me. I'm going to have to leave it out there as these are certainly possibilities, but I don't have enough scriptural evidence to say, okay, it has to be like this. But I do know that Jesus said that they would see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So something about Jesus' ministry caused the the followers of Jesus, the disciples, to recognize angels at work. Whether it was seeing them that we don't have record of or whether it was seeing the works that they understood that the angels were at work in. Now, Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, said that he could call 12 legions of angels. A legion's a lot. If he means legions like the Roman legions, then that's over a 1,000. That's Actually, it's 12,000. So if he can call 12,000 Angels, 12,000 times 12, or 12 times 12,000 is 144,000 angels to deliver him off the cross. Well, if Jesus could call angels to deliver him off the cross, why couldn't he call angels to do other things too? Or 144,000 angels just sitting on ready for Jesus to get to the cross, but they've been twiddling their thumbs all the three years that he's been ministering and healing the sick. I've got a hard time with that. The word of God is for us not to be wasters. Well, then it wouldn't seem right for God to be a waster then, would he? Wouldn't seem that he'd have angels wasting away when they could be at work. 
Why? Because they hearken unto the voice of his word. Well, nobody spoke the word of God more than Jesus. So if they're hearkening unto the voice of his word and Jesus is speaking the word of God, everything Jesus said was the word of God, seems to me that he would have kept the angels pretty busy just by the stuff that he said. Could be that the fig tree that he cursed in Mark chapter 11 died because of the work of an angel. His words put the angel to work to kill that tree. I don't know. Interesting to think about though, isn't it? Now, again, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to get so angel conscious. I don't want to get any more angel conscious than I am devil conscious. I want to be word conscious. Because if I'm putting the word to work, if I'm speaking the word in my life, then it's up to God to see that things are carried out. How they happen really doesn't matter to me. Well, Pastor Mike, when we speak the word, does that commission angels? Well, it can. But do you really care if it's an angel that does it or it's just some of the supernatural work of God? As long as you get the results, who cares? Right? But there are two occasions. There are two situations where we see angels at work in Jesus' ministry. Only two. Let's look at those. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 tells us when Jesus was tempted of the devil and he answered... The devil's temptation, the same way we're supposed to answer the devil's temptation, and that is by speaking the word of God. We'll look at the whole thing, beginning in verse 1. Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's uh, really a poor translation. It says, then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted of of the devil. God didn't lead him into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted of the devil. He left him in, led him into the wilderness by the Holy Ghost for the purpose of spending time with God. And it says he fasted for 40 days. Now, what's the purpose of fasting? Fasting is to get your mind off natural things and get your mind on spiritual things. Fasting doesn't change God. Fasting doesn't even change you. Fasting just makes you more aware of spiritual things. In that sense, I guess it changes you. But it doesn't change circumstances. Sometimes you hear people say, well, if if you want to be healed, you need to fast for two weeks. That's just dumb. If you've got a financial thing, I heard this several years ago. If you've got a financial thing, and I don't know if the numbers are right, but if you've got healing, you need to fast for seven days. If you've got a financial thing, you've got to fast for 21 days. If you've got some other, it's just all this stuff. And I'm thinking, how in the world do they know that? How is anybody supposed to know that kind of stuff? It amazes me when people come up with all this stuff. I'm thinking, how do you know? Well, Jesus fasted for 40 days. Yeah, the Spirit of God led him to. Well, Pastor Mike, shouldn't we fast for 40 days? Not unless the Holy Ghost tells me to. No way am I going to do it. I've seen a lot of people try to do it because they see Jesus doing it. They think they saw Moses doing it on the mountain. They think they saw Elijah doing it, but he didn't. He just went in the strength of what the angels gave him for 40 days. Now, if an angel appears and feeds you, go ahead and fast for 40 days. You'll be okay. But outside of that, it's just dumb. Fasting has a purpose. The purpose is to focus yourself on the things of God to either get an answer from him or, in this case, to prepare Jesus for his ministry. He hadn't done any signs and wonders and miracles yet. He's, a, he's just been baptized of the Holy Ghost. In the, by, uh, when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Holy Ghost came upon him, but he hasn't yet begun his ministry. This is the prelude to his ministry. No wonder he got along with God out there for 40 days. But you got to remember, he didn't have a human body at that point in the same manner that we do. He said he could lay his life down and take it back up again. Well, he is laying it down for the purpose of getting close to God. So it says he fasted for 40 days, and after that he was hungry. After those 40 days he was hungry. I think he probably got hungry before that 40 days. But you know what he's saying. And when the tempter came to him, and all the devil always wait till you're at your weakest point. That's when he comes. Then the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Prove it. The devil's always trying to push people to prove things. Well, if Jesus heals, prove it. Okay? Find somebody that believes. It's not going to be the person that's telling you to prove it, that's for sure. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Folks, the devil knows the Bible. 
He'll quote scriptures at you. You better know your, the Bible for yourself. And Jesus said unto him, it is also written, or it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In other words, not tempting the Lord thy God overrides what you're tempting me to do to, make, to prove that I'm the Son of God. Again, the devil took him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and said unto him, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Luke's uh, account says, for they have been delivered into my hands. Well, they were. When Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, Satan became the God of this world. Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, what did they do? Well, I think the first thing they did is fed him. We certainly see that principle with Elijah. Why would they have fed Elijah and not fed Jesus? They fed Elijah because he was discouraged. They fed Jesus because he's been out there doing the will of God. That would make sense, wouldn't it? But what would be the net effect of the angels coming and ministering unto him? They minister strength unto him. Jesus put himself into the hands of God. He put the word of God first, and it had a negative effect on his body. It had a a strength-reducing effect upon his body. So when the angels ministered to him, whatever they did, I personally think that they fed him, but can't prove it. You can't disprove it, but I can't prove it. But regardless of what it was, they had to have ministered strength to him. Wouldn't you think? That's what the angels do when you're down at your lowest. They minister strength to you. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 20. What is it? Well, let's start in Luke chapter 20 and see if I'm close. Luke chapter 22. We'll start in verse 39. This is on the night that Jesus was betrayed after the last supper with the disciples. And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives where his disciples also followed him. And when he was at that place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he kneeled down and prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus knows what he's facing. And the angel strengthened him. Now, what did the angel strengthen him to do? Well, the next thing it says is, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose up from prayer, he was come to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, why, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, the, the multitude came out, and that's when Judas led him to him. Notice when he was praying, an angel came and strengthened him. What does that mean? That means we can count on the angels to strengthen us to carry out God's plan in our lives. Now, folks, we can talk about strengthening agents. We can talk about the angels strengthening us and in all kinds of different ways. Um, I don't have any doubt that Paul was strengthened when he was on board the ship. And after he'd been out there for two weeks, then the angel stood by him and said, don't worry, Paul. There'll be no loss of men's lives. That's, I have no doubt that that would have strengthened him. It's an encouragement. Anytime we would see and experience some kind of supernatural visitation, whether it's the Lord, whether it's an angel, whatever, that brings us strength. There is a spiritual strengthening to that. No question about that. I don't have any doubt that when we pray in tongues, where the Bible says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies or builds himself or strengthens himself. I don't have any doubt that many times when we're praying in tongues, we're putting angels to work. Because you're praying the perfect will of God. They're hearkening under your voice. You don't know what you're saying. But if you're praying in line with, the, with God's will, which praying in tongues always is in line with God's will, it's the only way to pray unselfishly. I don't have any doubt whatsoever that, that many times when we pray in tongues, maybe not every time, but many times when we pray in tongues, we're putting the angels to work because we're praying God's plan and purpose and will. Sometimes we could be praying for ourselves. To put the angels to work to strengthen us. We could be praying for other believers to strength for the angels to strengthen them. There's no telling. I have no doubt that, that at least the, the initial part of heaven is going to be us finding out all the things God was doing that we didn't know he was doing. 
first few days of heaven we may all spend in the video room. Have our first initial tour. The welcome wagon sees us. Then let's head to the video room. God says, look at all the stuff I did. You didn't even know. But then he'll show us and look at what you helped with when you were praying. And you didn't even know. I have no doubt that there'll be many, many, many things that we'll find out about when we get to heaven that we have no clue. Paul prayed for us to be strengthened with might by the Holy Ghost in our inner man. How's that going to happen? And why wouldn't that automatically happen? I mean, we're believers. God wants us to be strong, doesn't he? You know as well as I do that just being around people that are strong in the Lord and strong in the word strengthen you. That's one of the reasons the Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together in the last days. Get around people that are strong. Why? Because the world is a mess. And if you don't strengthen yourself by being around other people that are strong, it'll pull you down. Church is just not something you're supposed to do. It's something that's supposed to be a, make a benefit, make a, a difference and bring a benefit to your life. Now, a lot of people have never been to a church where it makes a difference, and so they wonder, well, what's the point? Okay, I get that. I lived that for a while. But anywhere where the Word is being taught strengthens you. What part do angels play in that? I have no doubt that angels are part of the revelation and part of the, the revealing of God where his word is concerned. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. But they can also bring you into the plan of God for your life. I want to tell you something. Personal story. Never really told this before. Um, I was um, grew up in the Baptist church. Got saved when I was just before I turned uh, uh, seven years old. And um, I was a good Baptist boy. Loved God. Knew God. Knew God in a lot of ways. The Baptist church said you couldn't know him. Just because I was young and, and uh, the Holy Ghost would teach me things. I didn't know there was a Holy Ghost. But there were things that the Lord spoke to my heart when I was young that, that I didn't know not to listen. Now, I learned later not to listen. Baptist Church taught me that. But, uh, but in, at least initially, there was, I had a real relationship with God when I was young. Very real. I didn't have imaginary friends. I had a real friend. His name was Jesus. And, uh, and I was just happy as can be. I, I couldn't figure out why nobody else knew anything about him. And I don't mean that in a prideful way, but I was amazed at, at seeing older people, some of the adults, talk about Jesus in the distant way that they did when I'm thinking, well, he takes a bath with me. You know, I'd talk to him in the bathtub. But anyway, I got to the place where I was uh, entering my teenage years and, uh, and living through my teenage years. And, and I, I was just like everybody else. I just wanted to be popular. I wanted other kids to like me. And I wanted to be cool. And I wanted to, to be with the in-group and all that other kind of stuff. And uh, the older I got, the, the, uh, the further out there my friends would go, and, which pushed me out further. I always knew God. But there were some things that uh, uh, by the time I was, oh, I don't know, in 2021, 20, 22, I had no direction for my life whatsoever. Didn't know what I was going to do. Had some things that I was uh, kind of working toward, but didn't really know if I wanted to. Thought I wanted to play basketball, so I was pursuing that. Got the chance to do that, and finally when the chance came, I thought, ah, I don't want to do that. Also, I was preparing for law school. I was in school. I was doing some things uh, that, uh, uh, that seemed like the right thing to do. And so I'd uh, pursued a college education, is accepted into law school, um, you know, what else are you going to do? If you don't know what you're going to do, you've got to plan for something. But I, I really had no direction in my life. Had no, had no, I didn't know God had plans for people. Now, please understand me about this. It wasn't that I was running from God. I didn't know God had a plan for anybody's life, much less mine. Nobody talked about that kind of stuff. Nobody. And so I'm just kind of going through the motions and trying to be cool and trying not to be uncool and that kind of stuff. Well, I had a place uh, toward the end of my uh, college years where, um, where I wasn't living according to some things that I knew. And I was in and out, and, and, um, and the cool thing to do was to drink in college. So I was drinking in college and, and uh, didn't like it, couldn't figure out why anybody did. But um, everybody else was doing it, so I had to, too. But there was a, there was a certain uh, situation that happened where um, I went to school at, uh, at Alabama in uh, Tuscaloosa, and it was about... Um, Oh, I don't know, a little less than an hour away from Birmingham, where my home was. 
And there was something, I don't remember exactly the details, but there was something where everybody went from uh, Tuscaloosa to, to Birmingham for the weekend. And there was, a, there was something that was going on. There was an event, a party or whatever that was going on all the way on the other side of town from where I lived in Mountain Brook. Now, Mountain Brook was where the rich people lived. I was out in the east end of town, center point, where the, real, the normal people lived. And um, back then, this would have been in about, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, late 78, early 79, I guess. Um, there weren't any freeways. There were, there were two freeways that intersected in, in Birmingham. One went south, one went north and south down toward uh, Florida and Mo- uh, Montgomery and, and that direction, uh, south. And the, the other went uh, east and west to, to Atlanta. But outside of that, most everything was two and sometimes four-lane roads, and, uh, and, and it just it re- wasn't really very well developed. Everything went through town. You had to go through town, through the downtown area, to get just about anywhere from one side to the other. But there were cutoff roads, and these were old logging trails that had just been paved. And so if you took one of these cutoff roads, and I don't know what the name of it was. Everybody just called it the Mountain Brook Cutoff. I was coming back from Mountain Brook from this party. It was late, 2, 2.30 in the morning, something like that. Way later than I should have been out. Way later than anybody should be out. Uh, and I'd had too much to drink. And it had been a long weekend, busy weekend, that kind of thing. I was tired anyway. And so I'm on this cutoff road. And, and the, only, the only hills, the only real mountains uh, are mountains. But uh, Mountain Brook was called Mountain Brook because it's got the biggest hills in town. And there were these, this cutoff road, like I said, there were old logging roads originally that were just paved over. And there were ravines down in the, down off the edge. And there weren't any guardrails, there weren't anything. You go off the ravine, you're there for weeks before anybody finds you. I mean, you just go down into the hole, and if the crash doesn't kill you, you just starve to death till somebody finally finds your remains. At least that's the way it looked. And so I'm coming back, had too much to drink, Sleepy anyway, and I caught myself on the shoulder of that road two different times. Just the wheel dipping off into the into the shoulder woke me up, and every time you know it startles you, you jerk back across the road. It's too late at night; nobody else on the road. And uh, and I remember the second time that well, both times, but after the second time, I remember saying, "Lord, you're going to have to help me. Please help me." Now, I've been drinking; I'm not worth helping. If God's keeping count on doing the right or wrong things. But I said, Lord, you're going to have to help me. I, I've got to make it home. I can't pull off the side of the road. There's no shoulder. There's no place to pull off. I can't stop in the middle of the road and go to sleep. You've got to help me. And um, like I said, I remember, the, remember those, uh, those two times where I went off the, the end, started dipping off into the shoulder. It scared the fire out of me. And so I was praying in earnest. Well, the next thing I knew, it was morning, and I'm in the driveway of my house, asleep in my car. Now, I have no recollection how I got there. I don't know. You can say, oh, well, Pastor Mike, you're just being dramatic. Yeah, that's a real fault of mine. (laughs) But you might say, you know, you're just trying to make something more out of this than what it really is. You just drove home and you don't remember. Okay, I can accept that. But if I did and don't remember, somebody still helped me home. Now, here's the, here's the deal about that. Here's the reason why I knew it was the Lord, and I, I remember consciously. And, folks, you got to realize I'm not in any church. I've not been around anybody that talks about angels. I don't know anything about angels. I know the Bible says something about angels. I know there were times in the Bible where angels uh, appeared and did certain things. But I don't know anything about angels. Don't know much yet. But I sure didn't know anything at the time. But I had an overwhelming sense. And I don't know how to describe it any other way than that. I didn't even know you could have a spiritual sense. But I, there was something about that. I just knew that was an angel that helped me home. Now, here's, here's the net effect of that. Before that time, for about, I don't know, maybe two years, I had really, really struggled between doing the right things and doing the things that made me popular or made me win with everybody else, made everybody else feel comfortable. I tried not drinking with everybody, and that made them uncomfortable. So then you, gotta, you feel like, okay, well, that's, this doesn't work. And so I would go back and forth with things that I knew I shouldn't be doing, things I didn't even want to do. I mean, really, from the inside, I didn't want to do them. 
But I was doing things just because I was letting the actions and the activities of other people push me into it. But from that night, I never had any trouble standing up and saying no. It was not three weeks later that I was filled with the Holy Ghost. It was not six weeks later that I went to the the meeting that Brother Hagin held in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. I had a couple of tapes of Brother Hagin's, and I'd listened to him, but it really hadn't had any impact on me. I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm not sure this guy really knows what he's talking about, but he's got a funny voice, but okay. That was it. That's about as far as I went. But it wasn't six weeks later that I went to that meeting in Nashville, and that started things turning around. I went to the prayer room, found out about being filled with the Holy Ghost, had already been filled with the Spirit of God, but I didn't know it, didn't accept it. Then I found out some things that were going on. I got hold of some of Brother Hagin's material. It wasn't... Maybe four months after that, we wound up going to uh, to Rhema, taking my dad out to healing school where I saw the campus. I saw the people. I saw the impact that um, following God had on their lives and saw the difference that it made in my life. That made everything, put everything in, in motion to get me out to Rhema the following fall and set me on track. And I can trace every bit of that back to that one night where I wound up, found myself, asleep in my car in my driveway. Now, I can't really explain to you why. I didn't make a deal with God. I tried that before and never kept my deal, so after a while, you kind of give up on that. You know, Lord, get me off this roller coaster and I'll serve you with my life. You know, that always wound up just being foolish words. I didn't say, Lord, get me home and I'll serve you. I didn't say, Lord, get me home and I'll quit drinking. I didn't say, Lord, get me home and I'll do this, that, or the other. I didn't make any of those deals. I just said, Lord, I, I, I can't make it. I need help. And he got me home. Now, again, I don't know how he got me home. I have no recollection of it. I see that the angel had something to do with translating Philip from one place to the other. That's certainly possible. I guess if God could translate a person, he could translate a car too. I'm not saying that's what happened. I don't know. All I know is I was in one place and had a recollection of it. And the next thing, I was on the other side of town in my, in my home the next morning asleep in my car. Don't know how long I'd been there. I'm glad God knows how to put a car in park because otherwise I'd have gone through the garage door. I don't know. But that was a strengthening point in my life that turned things all around for me. From that, and honest to goodness, from that point on, I had no, trob- no problem whatsoever telling no. To my friends. They say the next day, hey, you want to go do this? No, I really don't. Well, why not? I just don't want to. Got back to school. They're all doing the same things. Hey, Mike, why don't you go do this with us? No, I don't think so. What's the matter with you? You used to be fun. Yeah, well, story of my life. Never had another problem from that point on. There was some kind of strengthening effect that that night had on me. It changed my life. It put me in position to receive what God had for me and change the course of my life. Now, I could be dramatic and say the angel spared my life. That could be true. Don't know. I could say it was something that I don't know that it was. Folks, you know as much about it as I do at this point, but I do know the result. The result was it had a strengthening effect on my life so that the things of God now, from that point forward, started becoming more and more and more important to me. And that was the thing that put me in a position. My choice, not God's, it's my choice. Didn't matter what God's plan for my life was. Still didn't know anything about God's plan. I just said, okay, I'm not going to do this stuff. I realized how foolish it was. I realized how I had taken my life in my hands by doing something, trying to make other people happy. And that's about as stupid as it gets. Can you say Amen. And so from that point forward, I never had any, any trouble with it. I never had a problem saying no. I wanted to say no. It was liberating to me to say no because I knew that God had done something in my life. Now, I've never told that story. I've never told, I've never told it to my kids. I've never told it to anybody. And, and there's a sacredness to it. I'm not real happy I told you. I like to keep things secret. I like, to keep God, I like to keep God's secrets. But I think it bears witness here. Now, whether this affects you or it affects somebody you care about, 
we need to realize that when we pray for other people, we could be sending angels to work to strengthen their lives, just like I believe the angels strengthen mine. Instead of praying, Lord, cause them to stop this. Maybe we ought to just pray for them in other tongues and put the angels to work. Because there's nothing anybody could have told me that would have made the difference for me. What are they going to do? Tell me what I already know. Then I have to defend what I'm doing. No point in my mother saying, Mike, you ought not to do that. Well, I know I ought not to do that, Mom. But I'm not going to take it from you. So I'm going to have to justify why it's okay for me to do that. I think we put other people in a box by trying to tell them things. We think if we just tell them, oh, if they just hear us say the words, that'll make the difference. Like God hadn't been talking to them already? Seriously? God can't get through to them, so we've got to talk? Folks, I always assume that my words are the least important things that people can hear. The most important things they can hear are the things on the inside. So when we pray and put God to work, when we pray according to what the Bible says, that's why I think those prayers in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 are so important. You pray those prayers that are listed in Ephesians 1 verses 17 through 19 and Ephesians 3 verses 17 through 19. You pray those prayers and then start praying for somebody in the Holy Ghost. Might have the same effect. I'm not saying it does every time. I don't know. But it might have the same effect that it had on me. Somebody somewhere was praying for me. I know it was my mom. She had been filled with the Holy Ghost not a long time before that. And I have no doubt in my mind that she put that to work on me and my brother. That may have been the thing that brought it to bear in my life. But I'm satisfied. Whether anybody else believes it or not, I'm satisfied that it was the work of the angel that had a strengthening effect on my life. Turned everything around for me. Everything. From something simple that started off so stupid and so dangerous turned out to be a turning point. Folks, I see a lot of things here where it says the angels ministered to Jesus after he was tempted of the devil. Now, he didn't have the same problem I did. He wasn't given in to temptation. So them ministering to him would certainly be in a different way than they ministered to me. But God ministers to us according to our needs. Same thing where the angel strengthened him when he prayed. I believe there are things that we'll see in the last days that will bring forth a change in people's lives. Can I show you one thing, one more thing before we go? Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. I really wasn't planning to do this, but I think that I think it fits here. James chapter 5. Verse 7, I hope you're familiar with the scripture. It says, be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. He's talking about the harvest, the precious fruit of the earth. Back up a few verses. Well, let's just start in verse 1. It says, go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Now, let me stop here long enough to say he can't be talking to rich people in the church because the Bible says that you were made rich by the work of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus. Rich is not, as far as God is concerned, rich is not what you have. It's who you are. It's position. It's condition. And the Bible gives instruction. Paul gave instruction to Timothy. Charge those that are rich in this world's goods. That they be ready to give. Ready to distribute. Ready to obey God with their substance, in other words. Well, he didn't say, give it all away because it's evil to be rich. Did he? He gave instruction to believers who are rich. So he can't be saying there's something wrong with being rich. He can't be talking about rich Christians here. He's talking about people that are rich in the world that are unbelievers. Now, with that in mind, notice what he says. Verse 3, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. He talks about moth-eaten garments. What is he talking about? He's talking about 
riches that are gathered up but are inactive. Now, what have they done? They've heaped together treasure for their last days. But God said, I'll turn it around and use it for the last days. When the only thing God's interested in in the last days is harvest. People coming into the kingdom of God. So what's going to happen? Verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Now, I don't know how you say the word Sabbath. But most people read that meaning the Sabbath day. That's not what this word means. The word Sabbath is the word armies. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used numerous times speaking of the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's talking about the Lord of angels, the angel army, the heavenly host. So what does it say? It says that God is interested in the treasure that's necessary to reap the harvest in the last days, and the angels are going to have something to do with bringing that into the hands of God, or God's people, I should say. Because the cries of them to whom it should be. Now, who should, it, who should the world's wealth belong to? The Bible says silver and gold is the Lord's. The fullness of the, or the earth is the Lord. The gold and silver is his. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. Well, who did God make it for? The devil and his crown? No, he made it for those that serve him. But there are riches and there is wealth in the world that is kept out of the hands of believers, in many cases by fraud, by misuse, by evil uh, occupation, by evil operations. Folks, the problem is not a lack of money. It's the location of money. There's always going to be plenty of money to get God's work done. The problem is, who has it? If it's in the hands of God's people, then the harvest work can be accomplished. If it's in the hands of the world, the unsaved, then how can the church use the money for God's purposes? Can you see it? Behold, the hire of the laborers, that indicates that money is due to the people of God that has not been received. The hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of the hosts. Now it says the two people are crying. It says the ones that have done the work are crying unto the Lord. But then it also says that the hire or the payment that's due to those laborers cries unto the Lord too. You know how the world talk, says that money talks? God said money talks. And it says he's listening. So there's a work of the angels. Watch and see the angels work in the last days. Watch and see the angels work. We've been talking for a long time about spectacular increase for the last days. You know why? Because of the Lord of the hosts. It's going to take money to reach the world. It's going to take money to bring the harvest in. You want to see some, one of the signs of the last days? Watch the angels bring the money in. And watch it change people's lives. Watch the strengthening effect that it has in people's lives when the angels go to work. Amen. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Father. Your word is true. Thank you that there is an innumerable host of the angels ready and willing to work as we speak your word. Father, we pray for our loved ones. We pray that you would give unto them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope of your calling and what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen them with might by your spirit in their inner man, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and depth and breadth and height, and that they would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that they might be filled with all the fullness of God. Holy Spirit, we trust you to give us utterance, to pray for our loved ones, 
And that utterance, that prayer, as given by the Spirit of God, will put the angels of God to work to strengthen those loved ones to make a change in their lives. Father, we thank you that the angels go to work to bring forth the riches of this world, the wealth of this world that is laid up for the just, that the harvest may be reached. Father, what a privilege it is to live in these last, most glorious days of the church. Cause us, Father, to see our part. Cause us, Father, to realize who we are. Made righteous by the blood of Jesus. With authority here on the, or on the earth to accomplish your plans and purposes. Thank you, Father. For the wonderful word of God that we can live by. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.